My dear buddy Lou and I are always going in different directions. We were both teaching at the seminary at Andrews, and he left me. He divorced me and came to California. So I came out to California to Loma Linda, and then he left me and divorced me again. He went up to PUC. So I left Loma Linda and came up to PUC. Then it was my chance for vengeance. I decided to divorce him. And I came from PUC down to Loma Linda again, left him hanging up there. So I noticed today we're going different directions, but we're in the same place. That's, that's true, you did. You did follow me to Loma Linda. It's good for you. Repent. <laughs> well, I'm happy to see you. I, I, I noticed that I'm all dressed up today. I didn't realize this was camp meeting. And I should have called ahead and said, how do you dress for this? But, you know, uh, and if I had known, I might have uh, worn my checkered shirt and my uh, straw hat and my soy pipe. This doesn't always work to find out how you dress because I one time was teaching at the seminary and I was going to come out to California and teach quite a large group of ministers. And I said to whoever I was talking with, I said, how do you dress? Oh, they said, this is California. Really dress casually. I said, you mean I could wear a sports shirt and a short sleeve and all that? Oh, yeah. So I came. The very first day, here I was with my sports shirt, short sleeves. Every minister in the place had a suit on. So I said, I know what to do about them. I had brought a suit with me, just in case. So the second day, I came with my suit, and every single minister had a short sleeve sports shirt on. <laughs> on the third day, we got it together. So I'm glad to be with you this morning. And I guess it can't mean it doesn't matter if you dress with a coat or without a coat or however you dress, it doesn't matter. I would like to ask you a question this morning, and that is, for what truth, what reality would you not only be willing to live your life, but to give your life? What would you live for? What do you live for? And what would you be willing to die for? Long ago at the start of this great country of ours, Patrick Henry said, Give me liberty or give me death. It was liberty that he was willing to die for. If you can't have that, you don't really have anything. And then in the French Revolution, uh, Patrick Henry makes me think of this. They, they had a threefold motto, Liberté, Equalité, and fraternity. Some people apparently didn't really believe in that because a period of despotism followed in France. I think also of General Douglas MacArthur, who, great general, in his last speech at West Point, with his voice dwindling away, he gave expression to what really mattered to him. And he said, the core, the core, the core, the Army Corps, that's where it was. When I think of that, I hear these words, the cross, the cross, the cross. That must be getting to the center of what meaning really is for us Christians. 
Ellen White in Desire of Ages has a statement that has arrested me and has made me ponder for a long time. She says, in different ways, different forms, Desire of Ages, pages 19 through 21, that the law of self-renouncing, self-giving, self-sacrificing love is the law of life for the universe. This has got to be the central reality, the central truth. Because God gave himself for us, you and I find life today and the promise of life to come. As we give ourselves for others, we imitate, we follow, we replicate what the Lord has done. And I've always thought that if we want to know what the highest duty is, we don't look first to the law, as good as it is, we look to the gift that Christ has given. If you see his gift, then you know what his law is. He comes to us in love. What does he ask of us? He asks that we love one another. He comes to us in forgiveness. He asks that we forgive one another. He comes to us and he washes our feet as the servant. And he asks that we wash each other's feet as servants. What he has done in his grace becomes for us the deepest moment of our own duty, the deepest moment of the law, as it were. And so this is what I want to talk about today, is this self-giving love. I was going to Union Theological Seminary in New York City some time back, years back, and I went the same route home every day. I went up Broadway, drove quite a long ways on that famous street, Broadway, came to 242nd Street, and there was a light there. And on this particular day, as I was going home into the Bronx, there was a red light. It was red. So I stopped. And as I was sitting there waiting for the light to change, I happened to glance out of my car window, and I looked over here, and into the street there, in the very street, the dirty street, was sitting a man. He was propped up against the a steel beam that was supporting the overhead tracks of the train system. His legs were extended full into the street. His arms were limp at his sides. His eyes were in a glassy stare. And his mouth was open and shaped in such a way as, like he wanted to say, whoa, help me. And I looked into that face, and I saw the face of lostness. My light turned from red to green. And like on automation, you know, I, I automatically made my left hand turn. I did nothing for the man in the street. I began to talk to myself. I said, Ivan, why didn't you do something for that man in the street? And then I thought of a number of rationalizations. Well, he may have been out of his mind, on drugs, something. Supposing you picked him up. Supposing you brought him into your car. Supposing you took him home. He may have hurt you, your wife, your family. But these were rationalizations. I've never forgotten the face, the face of lostness. Another car was coming up the Broadway of our time. The driver came to 242nd Street of our world, 
he stopped. There was a red light. And as he looked out of his window, he saw you and he saw me sitting in the street. At risk to himself, he got out of his car, self-giving, self-sacrificing love. And he came to each one of us and he took us into his car. And he has changed our lives. He's even made something beautiful out of our lives. This is the story of the gospel. And this is what makes all the difference in the world. This is the story from which we take our cues. In the New Testament time, times, there were four Greek words for love. Only two of them are found in the New Testament. One of them not found in the New Testament, we know very well, the word for love was eros, eros love. It is a love which seeks the fulfillment of one's own desires, whether it be in nature, from art, great art, in sexual satisfaction or what. But the whole idea of eros love is that we find personal satisfaction. Nothing wrong with it except when it becomes the center of our lives. And then there is philos love, which you all know about. Philos, a friend. A philos person is a friend. And we have uh, the city of Philadelphia, brotherly love. Yes, this is a wonderful kind of love, the love we have for our friends. What would we do without our friends, especially when we hurt? And then there was that word. It was the least used word among the Greeks for love. The word agape that you're all familiar with. Very rare in its usage and meaning the kind of magnetism, the kind of attraction that we feel for someone of great value, power, beauty, um, wealth, fame, something like that. You're attracted. We are all attracted to people like this. That word, into that word, the wineskin, the old wineskin of that word was poured the new wine, this potent new wine of the gospel. And you know what happens if you pour new wine into old wineskins. The wineskins are naturally going to burst under the power of this new fermentation. It's already gone through that once, but it, it was supple before. And now it's hard and it can't take it. And so the wineskin bursts. And that's what happened with the word for love. It took on a new meaning. It took on the meaning of the cross. This is the forgiveness of the unforgivable. This is the love for the unlovable. This is the acceptance of the unacceptable. It's not based on anything in people out there. It's based on something in the lover who feels propelled to be there for others who hurt. This is the love we need to know about and the love we need to exemplify. Yes, indeed. It is the love of the cross. And so in light of this kind of love, when you say to someone, I love you, I think what you should be meaning is something like this. There is nothing I would not say. There is nothing I would not do to help you in your need. No matter who you are, what you've done, 
what your color is, your ethnicity, your religion, whatever. I am totally and ultimately concerned for you. That's the kind of love that the gospel talks about and the kind of love that the gospel calls us to. I've had some pretty good uh, illustrations of that in my life, and I'm going to tell you a few of them today. But first of all, I want to deal with some texts of the Bible which exemplify God's love, compassionate, caring, identifying love. My talk is called The Heart of Healing Love, and I propose that what is at the heart of healing love is compassion and what is identical, really, these are identical twins to compassion, is identification. To help someone in their healing is to identify with them in their pain. And so, what about it? Well, a few texts in the Old Testament. In Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, if you want to take your Bible, if you want to look at the Pew Bible, or just listen to it, in Isaiah, the 40th chapter, there is a triad of verses in Isaiah, and it moves from one level right up through to its highest crescendo. And here's the first text I'd like to give you, Isaiah 40, verse 27. God's people have a complaint against God. And here's what they say. And God asked them about it. Why do you say, O Jacob, a name for God's people, and why do you speak, O Israel? And here's what Israel says. My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. God doesn't see me. He doesn't care about me. Look at what I'm going through. My rights are being disregarded. The Creator made me. And because He made me and I didn't ask to be made, I've got certain rights. But my rights are disregarded by God. And the Almighty God answers from on high at first. And He says, Have you not known, haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Instead of him being faint, he gives... Now, here, here's the picture of the transcendent God. Now, here comes the nearness. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Yes, even yous may be weary and they may faint, be exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up like eagles and they will fly. And God will be with them. And God will come near them. So, power to the powerless. And when you're going through something, it's of great comfort, I believe, to know that God is with us in our trial and that he will give us power. Not power to avoid the suffering, but power to make it through the suffering. Now, on a second level comes Isaiah 49. A great verse. I love this verse. Isaiah 49, verse 14. Sounds just like Isaiah 40 at the beginning. But Zion said, Jacob said, Israel said, the Lord has, and remember these words. They will be important further on in this talk. The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. 
Have you ever felt that way, that God has forsaken you and forgotten you? Well, the prophet says, can a woman forget her nursing child? How many of you as mothers would forget that baby who is fed at your breast? Show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget once in a while, once in a very rare while. You may find a baby somewhere at the doorway of a hospital, police station, maybe even terribly, tragically in a dump. That can happen once in a while, but not usually. But God says, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. You thought so, but I will not forget you. And then in wonderful metaphorical language, see, I have inscribed you, I've engraved your name on the palms of my hands. I've engraved your names on the palms of my hands. God is pictured often in the Bible as holding out his hands to his people, to the whole world. And on those hands can be found your name and my name. God, far from forgetting us, he's got us so close. It's like an inscription, a tattoo that won't go away. We're engraved there. And every time he opens his hands, he sees us. And then he says... Your walls are ever before me. What does that mean? Villages, as you know, in ancient times used to have walls around them and so on. And probably our first thought is the protection that walls afford from the enemies without, which would be another way of saying God will be with us. You know, even though there are many enemies and many adversities, he'll be with us. But I have another suggestion to make as well, and that is the walls. What about the life inside the walls? Instead of just the enemies outside, look inside those walls, and what do you see? There we, that's where we live. We live in our cities. We live in our villages. We're there, and God is saying, I think, something like this. I see within the structure of your lives. I see where you live. I see how you live. I see your hopes. I see your dreams, your fears. I see your tears. And I care about you. I'm always looking in to see what you're going through. And then in a, the third, the crescendoing, the, the climax of this triad of verses in Isaiah 63, verse 9. And there are many translations of the verse, but I think what recommends itself is what I give you now. Sometimes your margin of your Bible will have this translation. Talking about his people, it says, In all their distress, he was distressed. In all their affliction, in other words, he was afflicted. Whenever we cry, God cries, as in Romans 8. We don't know how we ought to pray, but the Holy Spirit groans with us. And as our groan goes up, the groan of the Holy Spirit goes up, transferring our pain into God's perfect knowledge of our situation. In all their distresses, he was distressed. You won't find that in Aristotle who said that God is the unmoved mover. He has set everything into motion, but he's not moved by anything. And that comes to mean, as you derive various meanings from it, that God is not moved at all by the specter of human woe and problems and so on. It's a God that does not feel, a 
a God that does not know, a God does not, does not care. And so many philosophies and religious viewpoints have a, a God who doesn't really care. But the Hebrew Christian view is God cares so much, he enters into our pain itself, and he wants to help us. Even texts where the judgment of God is mentioned and pictured in vivid terms, like Hosea, the second chapter. I don't like reading this chapter, not the first 13 verses of Hosea 2, because the people of Israel has gone off a-whoring after other gods. They've played the part of the prostitute. And they haven't followed God in any sense of the word. And God starts saying in the course of that chapter what he's going to do to Israel. I'm going to take away your vineyards. I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to do that to you and so on. And then you come upon verse 14, and it says, therefore, and you say, aha, this is it. The axe is now going to fall. Therefore, because therefore draws a logical conclusion from what has preceded. And what has preceded is the picture of our sin. But the conclusion is different than you expect. Therefore, therefore what? What will God do in the great therefore that the text speaks about? Here it is. Hosea 2.14, on that day, excuse me, therefore, I will now, I will now what? I will now allure her. This sinful, rebellious, idolatrous, polytheistic people, I will now allure her. I will bring, uh, woo her. See, that's a word for wooing. I will bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. And from there, I will give her her vineyards. The very vineyards that I said I was going to take away, I'm going to give to her. And I will make the valley of Achor a valley of hope. When there is no hope because it's all dark and judgment is impending, God gives hope. So the therefore means something different than we thought. It draws a conclusion, all right, but not one you expected. Therefore, precisely because you are sinful, because you've gone your own way, because you haven't cared about me or about each other, precisely because of your sinfulness, I'm coming close to you. The farther we go away from God, the closer he comes to us. That's the message of Scripture. You can see the implications for how we should live our lives all together with the rebellious child, with the, with the stubborn husband, with whatever it may be. The farther they go, the closer we ought to come. Indeed. And then in John, we move to the New Testament. There are many texts in the Old Testament. We move to the New Testament quickly. John, the first chapter. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, and here's a picture of the transcendence of God, the majesty of God, and so on. But it won't just remain that way. John 1.14, and the Word became what? The Word became flesh. That's <laughs> how near can you get. He became flesh. He became one of us. And he, and you can translate it various ways, he tabernacled among us. I like the idea of he tented among us. He pitched his tent by the side of our tents. Right where we were living, that's where he came. And I was just at a camp meeting, at the Tahoe camp meeting, and I was giving a series of uh, talks there. And I saw all these tents, all these tents all over the place. And I just imagined to myself, 
that in the midst of all those tents, there was a tent. And on the doorway, it said, Jesus. He came among us, and he pitched his tent right where our tents were. That's the picture of Jesus. Well, how close did he come? Well, he became flesh. We've just pointed that out. But then he came closer, it seems to me. In Matthew, we have a picture of Jesus' baptism, Matthew 3. John the baptizer is baptizing. You remember his message. Repent and be baptized for what? For the forgiveness of your sins. And so they began to flock out to him to get forgiveness and to repent. And then there comes one among them. His name is Jesus. He pitches his tent right in the midst of all those people going to a baptism. What is he doing there? Does he need to repent? Does he need his sins forgiven? John the Baptist says, I don't want to baptize you. I've got to be baptized by you. I'm not worthy. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let it be this way. What is Jesus doing? I have no doubt, dear friends, that what he is doing is identifying with all those people who came in repentance for the forgiveness of his sins. He is identifying with them in their sin. How close is that identification? A shocking, astounding verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21. can hardly believe it whenever I read it. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. He takes our sin totally upon himself, in himself, and he gives us his righteousness. That's pretty close, dear friends. At the cross, you remember what Jesus cried out, and this is what I was hoping you'd remember from those Isaiah texts. Jesus makes a cry at the cross. He says, Eloi or Eloi, you know, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? Not only Israel, but Jesus raises this cry. Why have you forsaken me? You know where that comes from directly? It reminds us of Isaiah, the Lord has forsaken me. But specifically, it is a quotation from Psalms 22, verse 1. My God, my God, the psalmist David says, why have you forsaken me? And keep in mind something. We think of that as just the cry of David. No, it's the cry of the people of God. The book of Psalms, you must remember, is Israel's hymn book. They, these psalms were sung in the temple. And what you must hear is all the people of God singing this, looking up into heaven, and saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here we are languishing, being persecuted, being tyrannized, oppressed by various and sundry powers. Why have you forsaken me? Meaning, why have you forsaken us? When Jesus says what he says, he identifies with the psalmist who identifies with everyone. And I think Jesus is identifying with everyone from the beginning of time. You know, people have been sending their cries up to God. And Jesus, in solidarity with every one of us, cries out what we cry out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How close can he come? Well, it's this close. He, though he was in the form of God, 
Philippians 2, did not count equality with God as something that had to be, King James says, a matter of robbery, something you snatch at, but it, the word can also mean something you hold on to. He did not count his equality with God as something he had to hold on to at all costs, but what did he do? He emptied himself. Theologians argue about this all the time. What does it mean that he emptied himself? But I think it's understood much more by the poetry of the heart than by the science of the mind. He emptied himself, how? By taking on the form of humans, human beings. He took our actual form. He even took on, it says, the form of a slave. And he humbled himself. How far did he humble himself, dear folks? He humbled himself all the way to what? To death. And then, even as if it were one step down from there, he, death on a cross, the most ignominious, ignominious and terrifying deaths of all. He humbled himself to that. All the way from the throne of God to the wood of the cross, he came for you and me. And, of course, you've got to read Philippians 2, all of it, because you find out that what Paul is trying to do is give an illustration of what we're to do to each other. First part of the chapter says, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ. He wants all of us to have that mind. That means these are stories not for just theological understanding or debate, but stories meant to inform us in the way we should be living our Christian lives. There's an interesting text in Romans 8.17, the last of the texts I'll give you now, though there are many more. Romans 8.17, which says something interesting. It says we're going to be joint heirs with Christ. We're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ with a proviso. Provided that we suffer with him, Jesus, in order that we might be glorified with him. Now, I, I am struck by this verse that what is needed to be with him in glory is to suffer with him. Suffer with him. What does it mean to suffer with Jesus? Does it mean we look back like I give that article to my students uh, describing from a medical standpoint what crucifixion involved and it's a terrible, one of the worst deaths in the world. Does it mean to look back there and say, oh my, Jesus went through that. I feel terrible that Jesus went through that. And we identify with his sufferings in that way, suffer with him. That's important, but I don't think it's it. Or as Jesus suffered for, you know, from all of the terrible things that they did to him, so uh, we suffer the slings of outrageous fortune. And so uh, does that mean to suffer with Jesus in that way? We suffer similar kinds of things as he suffered? I don't think it's quite that either. Suffer with Jesus. To suffer with Jesus. I think the clue is this. What it's calling us to do is to enter into Jesus' cause, into Jesus' enterprise, into what he was into. What was he into? He was into giving himself for others. To suffer with Jesus is to suffer with all those who suffer. People who are going through terrible things of one kind or another, whether it be guilt from sin or pain from surgery or cancer or whatever it is, they need spiritual resources from God out of heaven. But you know, they need even more than that. They need God's people on earth to identify with them in their pain, in their loss, in their anguish. They need that. We need to get close with them. 
in Isaiah 53, which is applied to Jesus in the New Testament, it says, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's the point. To suffer with Jesus is to enter his enterprise and to bear the griefs and the sorrows of other people. Coming so close to them, cheek to cheek, so to speak, that the tears of their pain and suffering run down our cheeks. That's what's needed. That's what the world needs. That is what the world's waiting for. I believe that's what the Adventist message is supposed to be about. Not just talk, not just theology, but people who really know how to love with a self-giving, a caring love that goes all beyond, beyond all measure. Now let me just give you a few stories here, okay? I, I met, I've met up with this kind of love, so i tell you a few of my own things here. My dad, my Catholic father, who did disown me when I became an Adventist. He couldn't take that I would go off on my own as a teenager and, and so on. Well, anyway, I always hoped that he would come to know the Adventist message and the Adventist people and so forth and so on. And there's a whole story connected with this. But he went off to Yugoslavia and what would prove to be his last trip, his last days upon this earth. And he suffered a massive heart attack while he was there in, in Yugoslavia. And I had to get to him. And so I, I, I was able to make it to see my dad before he died, and he did die there. But the remarkable thing was this, that Seventh-day Adventists had everything to do with his death. The people that he rejected in me uh, had everything to do with his death. Um, the doctor that uh, he had been climbing a steep hill, and, and, and when they rushed him with this heart attack to this physician, it was an Adventist physician who gave him a shot in the heart that kept him alive until he got to the hospital, in which place her sister, an Adventist physician was, who, and they were coming to see my father, and uh, there was an Adventist nurse in the hospital who was doing the same, and I didn't know about this, and I was on my way, and all of this is happening and then there was this couple, this married couple, happened to be the parents of a seminary couple that I went to see before I left to learn some things about Yugoslavia because I had never been there. And the wife, the wife of this uh, husband uh, that was in the seminary, her parents lived right next to that hospital, next door. We're coming every day. My dad was a stranger lying in the road. And they came to him, and they brought him food, which he couldn't eat, but some drink, which he could drink just a little bit of. And I want to tell you, they lifted him up, and they put him down. He was in pain, writhing in pain. They turned him this way and that way. They touched his body. They touched his body. And they also said, we want you to know the love of Jesus. And have you accepted Jesus? And my father said, yes, indeed, I've accepted Jesus. So that when I came, almost immediately, my father began to say to me, if they make people like this, then I want to be a part of this people. I want to be, he said to me, if I, get, if I live to get out of here, I want to bapti be baptized into this people. Why? You want to know what it was? It really wasn't Adventist theology, not at all to lower the importance of that. But Adventist theology should really be about love, or should it not, at its core, the love of God? It was because of the action of love, the reality of the love of these people that my father was moved. 
my brother, years later, also named Matthew like my dad, five years ago, to be exact, in the city of Detroit, lay dying in the hospital, hemorrhaging from a bad liver. He was an alcoholic, a musician. The boss says, drink with the patrons. When they want to buy you a drink, drink. And he got hooked on the drink. He never would admit it until this time when I came also, flew out from California to visit my brother, my dying brother. And uh, you know what? In that uh, intensive care unit was an Adventist nurse. And she was caring for my brother. And she did extraordinary things. I mean, after hours, she would come and see how my brother was. And then when he was moved to another place in the hospital, she would come to see him. She'd come after work hours, and she would visit. She didn't have to do that. She would do that. And then on the day he would die, I was there holding on to my brother as he, as he died. By the way, I had the privilege of he had gone into a coma, and then uh, I thought he would never come out. The physician thought he would never come out of that coma. All systems were failing, you know. And then in the midst of that coma, he came out of it. And I, with the second Matthew, was able to talk to him about the love of God in Jesus Christ. Are you sorry, you know, for the way things have turned out? Oh, yes. And he was very lucid. And you want to give your heart to the Lord? Oh, yes. You want to be a part of his kingdom? Oh, yes. And then after all of that, he went into the coma again. And he died. And who comes to the room? Here comes this Adventist nurse. And then at the funeral, who comes walking through the doors? This Adventist nurse. And she didn't have to come there. We were more or less strangers to her, but she came. And while I'm greeting the people all over the place, where's this Adventist nurse? She's kneeling down by my mother who is crying, hurting. She's kneeling down. She's got her two hands, two hands. And she's comforting her. Or she's standing beside her and putting her arm around her and just showing her something that was so needed. My mother cannot forget this nurse. She was moved by the love of this Adventist nurse. That's where it's at, dear friends. And I have to tell you, I must tell you about this. When my own wife died of uh, cancer of the breast, the day I came marching into the hospital, with my three daughters. There was that lineup of seven people, nurses, two surgeons, a cardiac man. Uh, I knew she was gone. It was obvious. When you have a lineup like that, it's, it's happened. So I asked one of my friends, the cardiac fellow, and I said, she's gone, isn't she? And he said, yeah, she's gone. I said, well, I want to go see her. And he and the other surgeon tried to dissuade me. My wife had gotten a clot rising up from her ankle to her hip into her pulmonary region, had choked her off, her breathing, and so on. They worked on her for a long time, but they couldn't do anything about that. But I think, this is my speculation, that they thought she didn't look very good. And maybe you'd want to hold up with seeing her. But no, I wanted to go. My daughters didn't want to go. So one of the surgeons says, I'll go with you. So he... He came with me to the room. And I thought he was going to leave me at the door of the room. 
but he didn't leave me. When I entered the room, he entered the room. When I went to the foot of the bed on one side, he went to the foot of the bed on the other side. When I walked up to the front of the bed, he walked up to the front. When I kneeled down over her head, he kneeled down too. He identified with me and with her. He was right there. He was right there. He was my alter ego. He was suffering with Jesus, I think, and suffering with us. He really cared. I have to tell you this story, too. One of my students, perhaps the most brilliant student I ever had, was from my college days of teaching, preceding teaching at the seminary. And he called me up one day and he said, I'd like you to come and visit me. Help me to avoid bitterness. Because he had contracted ALS, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease. And it was already doing things to him. He said, come and talk with me. So we met in a restaurant. He could still drive and everything. And I thought it was really something to ask him, for him to ask me to come to be with him, you know. Could I help him in his bitterness? Could I help him out of his bitterness? So we had, a, we had a good talk. Now time passes. Time passes. And I hadn't seen him for a good while. I should have. I get a phone call from his wife. She said, Ron would like you to come and see him. He's totally, he can't move anything. He's in bed at this particular place, this clinic. And he would like to see you. And, of course, I wanted to go and I went. I rushed over there. The next day, he was going to have them pull out the breathing apparatus that he had been on for four years to help him breathe. And he finally got to the place where he was tired of that apparatus. He wanted no more of it. No more of it at all. And so he was going to take it out. He was going to die. He wants me to come the day before he's going to die. I had been his teacher. I cared about him. That's true enough. But it's like a sacred sanctuary into which you come and you feel rather impotent and powerless to affect anything good or healing at this point. But you come and you must come. And so what a privilege it is to come and to be with a person like that. So I came. We spelled out letters, you know, a certain way. Uh, to spell out letters, uh, he, uh, I would say, you know, is it A? He wants to say something, see, but you have to... Uh, had a little alphabet here, and there was a way to get him to spell out whatever he wanted to say, and we were going through all of that. And so I'm spending time with him, and now I know I've got to leave. I know I have to leave. My dear student, he wanted me there. So I'm going to leave. What do you say to someone that you're not going to see again in this life? What do you say? I wondered about that. Well, I touched him um, before I le left. I touched him, held him. He could get a smile on his face. He had a smile on his face. I touched him. I told him I loved him. And I said to him what the Catholic bishop in Boston said to John Kennedy when he had been assa assassinated, lying there. The bishop said, Archbishop, I'll, I'll see you beyond the stars, John. So I said to Ron, I said, I'll see you beyond the stars, Ron. 
I planned to see him. He had a lot of problems with God. He was such a philosophic mind. He was an incredible person, destined to be a PhD, but illness stopped that from happening. But you know, in all of his thoughts, he came to the view, after all, that there really was a God, that God was. And so I planned to see my friend beyond the stars. And this is a reflex, I think, of God's love for us. I'm going to end this with a very short story. I end my sermons two or three times, so you know. <laughs> And I always tell the same story. The pastor preached the long sermon, parishioners waiting at the door. And the parishioner says to the pastor, Look, pastor, just because your sermon's going to be immortal, there's no reason why it had to be everlasting. <laughs> so, the story is this true story. There was a young family living in the house, and next to it was an elderly family. And the elderly man's wife died. And this elderly fellow, we used to sit in his backyard and look so very sad. So the young boy said to his mommy one day, Mommy, I'd like to go and visit the man next door. Well, she said, Go ahead. And so um, he went out there, and the mother was watching him. And what he did was the man sitting on a chair in his backyard and the boy just climbed up into his lap and sat in his lap and sat there for a long time. And then he came home. And the mother said, What is it that you said to the man while you were sitting there in his lap? Oh, he said, Mommy, I didn't say anything. I just helped him cry. That's what the world is waiting for. Those who can help them cry, who are so moved by their pain that they cry with them as God has cried with us. Now I'm going to ask you, what is the Adventist message? And I always quote this. I'm not the only one to quote it. Christ's Object Lessons, page 415. I love this, maybe beyond all quotes. It is the darkness of the misapprehension of God that is enshrouding our world. People are losing a knowledge of his character. His character has been misunderstood, misrepresented, and so on. At this time, a message is to go forth, illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Then at the bottom of the page, it says... The last rays of merciful light to be given to the world will be the revelation of his character of love. That's what Adventism is about, should be about, must be about. And it has to come through us. And this is my last story. In my dormitory room in college, there was a picture. Oh, this is it. This really is it. <laughs> A large picture of Jesus. Not the profile of Jesus, but Jesus looking full at you, you know. Glass covering it, very big. I was admiring that picture one day. And then I saw something. In the face of Jesus, I saw, because of the way the light was coming off that glass, I saw the outline of my face. My face was there. But you know what was coming through? It was not my face. 
It was the face of Jesus. Now, dear friends, Christ, God, they don't have any other avenue but you and me to show this love. We have to be seen. But what has to come through is Jesus. As Ellen White says in Acts of the Apostles, this is still part of the same story, so I haven't fibbed. She says, talking about Paul's conversion, upon the soul of the stricken Jew, the image of the Savior's countenance was imprinted forever. May the face of the loving, self-giving Jesus who calls us to his service be imprinted on our minds and hearts forever. And may a world know that Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists, are a people of love who call a world to accept the love of God. And then we'll all be together one day. May it be so. Amen. Amen. So now may the Lord, the God of creation, who creates from one end of the earth to the other, whose love never ends, who never tires or grows weary, may that God fill us with compassion to make us these kind of people through the power of the Holy Spirit with our model, Jesus. Amen. Amen.